All right. Well, good morning, Eden Church. You guys are looking good. That was impressive. We tried the greeting time last week. It was about a C plus. This was like a B plus. Okay. I know. I know we're moving in the right direction, and I'm grateful for uh, all the effort that went into that uh, just a few minutes ago. And I just want to say a special shout out to the band this morning. Uh, you drank your, they drank their coffee this morning, so I'm very grateful for them. Uh, I do want to say a special welcome to all of you who are joining us online. We love that, uh, as was said already, what, wherever you are, you can stay connected to service here in the morning and to this community. We're grateful that you're doing that. Also, a shout out to those of you who are in the family room. Glad that you're able to stay connected. And then a special welcome to those of you who may be in this room for the first time. Uh, we know that it is a big step to step into a place like this, and we are so glad that you did. Uh, my name is Daniel. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'm part of the team here at Eden. And uh, after every service, I'm at the, the guest uh, table right outside the doors of the auditorium, and I would, I would literally love to get to meet you, shake your hand, get your name, and uh, we have a, a special gift as a thank you for being here with us this morning. Uh, before we get started, I do want to just highlight uh, one thing, give an update. Last week, if you were here with us, you know that we started uh, what we're calling Next Gen Heroes. Uh, you can thank ChatGPT for that, for that concept, but we've been leveraging AI in our church. Uh, we're early adopters, but uh, we started, we started uh, Next Gen Heroes, and um, this was really all an opportunity for us to uh, grow our volunteer base in our kids' team uh, ministry and eating kids. And this is one of the things that we call a good problem, all right, because we didn't have this problem several years ago, but you'll notice a reoccurring recurring theme uh, in our conversation on a, on a uh, Sunday morning uh, where almost every season we are recruiting more people for our kids' team. And that's because our kids' team is one of our fastest-growing ministries in the church and so every few months, for the last months, we've been saying, okay, it looks like we're going to need a few more. And so over the, during the month of August, we uh, are attempting, we're praying that we would have 20 more people jump onto our kids' team. And, uh, and just based on the number of kids we have and the amount of volunteers, that would provide a really healthy rotation uh, of people getting involved with our kids' ministry. And part of why we're presenting this is because it is, it is one of the most important ministries in the entire church, what we do in our kids' ministry uh, will live beyond our lifetime. So we are investing in the future, and that's the opportunity that we keep bringing to people. So we're, we're trying to recruit 20. Last week, this is a contested number. Some people say four. Other people say five. But uh, we have four or five new people sign up to join our kids' team. And so, um, so what do they say? Chop, chop wood, carry water. All right, that's all we're doing. We're just chipping away at that goal. But we just want to present it to you. If, if you feel any inclination, uh, we know that we have so many gifted people in this church that would be a blessing to those kids, and we'd love for you to consider signing up. You can just get that card uh, in, in the back of the chair in front of you, and it has all the information to, to sign up. Uh, today we're in week two of our series called People of Promise. Last week we looked at Hosea, uh, the life of a guy named Hosea. He was a prophet. He lived in the ancient world. And basically his role among the people of Israel was to get a message for God, from God and to share it with his people. And he had kind of an interesting assignment because uh, Hosea's life was meant to be a picture of the relationship that Israel had with God. And at the time it wasn't a very good relationship. In fact, Israel had basically abandoned God. They were unfaithful to him. Uh, they had... Uh, fashioned idols, they had begun adopting pagan practices of like neighboring countries, and there was so much about 
the culture during that time that was engaging like really wicked activity. But what was so powerful as we were reading through the book of Hosea was that we saw that there was not one moment where God had forgotten the promise that he had made to his people. And the power of that promise to them is a principle for us. That no matter what you have been engaged in, no matter how far your life has traveled away from sort of the basic relationship with God, there has never been a moment where God has forgotten the promises that he has made for your life. God does not see you at your worst. God sees you at your best. God sees you through the lens of the promises that he has for your life. And that was an encouraging reminder for myself. And I hope that maybe that was encouraging for you, uh, depending on the season of life that you're in. Because that is a truth that we can bank our lives on. Today I want to talk about what God is willing to do with people who are willing to pray. What God is willing to do with people who are willing to pray. And so to do that, we're going to be in the Old Testament. It's also known as the Hebrew Bible. And it's the first part of the Bible. And we're going to be looking at the book of 2 Chronicles. And what is really cool about 2 Chronicles is that it basically serves as a history for the people of Israel. And, uh, and, and what was interesting about the way that uh, the Jewish culture recorded history is that there were some details regarding timelines and, and uh, cultural environment. But basically, uh, Jew, the Jewish culture would record history through the lens of a few influential people in every generation. And so at the time of the writing of the book of 2 Chronicles, the Israelites were in this place where they were establishing themselves as a nation under the leadership of King Solomon, who happened to be the third king of Israel. And in every generation, this was sort of the warning to the people of Israel. It was, pay attention to your spiritual condition. Pay attention to what is happening in your heart. And as you look through scripture, that is sort of like the repeated statement or the repeated theme with the children of Israel because what God knew is that whenever the, Israel, the people of Israel began to distance themselves from God, bad things would happen. They would become weak in their culture. They would become disorganized and ununified. And so it was a constant reminder. God would remind them, make sure that you are aware of your spiritual condition. And this was the pattern that we see happening all throughout the Old Testament. God would bless Israel. Israel would forget about God. Israel would fashion idols, adopt pagan practices, live in wickedness, and God's judgment would fall upon them. They would repent. God would forgive them. And this was like a cycle that happened over and over again. And we might think, well, maybe they're just having to go through the process, right? You just have to learn your lesson. But the problem is that every time they went through this cycle, it left a carnage in the wake of their lives. People were destroyed and hurt and struggling. Every time it was painful. And so the conversation that God was happening with the people of Israel was a reminder of the promise that they had with each other. And so this is where we pick up in 2 Chronicles chapter 14. It says, If my people who were called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, recently I started playing Monopoly with the boys. And, uh, and you would think that a get-out-of-jail-free card is valuable. It really isn't that bad, especially when there's a lot of hotels and houses on the board. You actually, you know, actually, that's when it's most valuable. 
And, uh, and it could feel like if you were the audience that God was speaking to here, that this would be like a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? Like no matter what your nation is going through, no matter the enemies that you are facing, if you pray, God would heal your land and forgive your sins. And what's also interesting is that if you were an Israelite, this phrase, this promise would have reminded you of a promise that God had already made in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And the point of all this is that God was trying to clarify the nature of the relationship on the front end. Wouldn't that be nice if, like, we had clarity in all of our relationships? We knew where we stood with every person in our life. We knew uh, what the future was going to hold and the nature of our The other day, my wife and I were watching this show, and, and someone said, uh, they were asked, are, you know, are you dating anyone? And they said, uh, I'm in a situationship. And we didn't even know what that meant. I don't even know what it means today. It just sounds complicated, right? It doesn't sound like a good thing. Well, God did not want to be in a situationship with the people of Israel. He was defining the relationship. And what he wanted them to know was that throughout the course of our relationship with one another, prayer is going to be an important part of how we interact with one another. And this is the reason why. is because prayer is a thing that moves God's heart. Look at what it says. He says, if you pray, I will hear you. In other words, what he's saying is that whenever you pray, I want you to know that you have my attention. Whenever you pray, I am listening. Whenever you pray, you have my undivided focus on what you are saying. Prayer is something that moves God's heart. And we may think like worship is important, and it is. Okay, don't hear me say what I didn't say. Prayer is important. Giving, generosity, sacrifice, uh, uh, knowing our, the scriptures, all of those things play a really significant part in how we interact with God. But what we see over and over again is that prayer is the thing that moves God's heart. And I want to be a little bit transparent, and I know I can be with this group because there's no judgment in this place. Uh, but this is a joke. All right. Uh, <laughs> But there, I don't know about you, but there are certain things that just, whenever I, if like a show or a commercial, whenever I watch them, it brings me to tears. And it's embarrassing. If I know it's coming, I kick the kids out of the room. I say, get out of here real quick, guys. Um, but there's this one commercial that is reiterated in several different versions. But it's where like a parent, a mom or dad is coming home from deployment. They're in their military garb. And they show up to like their kid's event. Maybe it's like a high school or like a practice. And everybody is in on this whole experience. And so they come up right next to the kid. The kid takes off the mask. And without even worrying about any of their surroundings, they, like, jump into the parents' arms. They sque- you can just tell they're squeezing them tight. They bury their little crying faces in their arms. And they're just embracing each other. I'm getting emotional talking about it right now. And I don't know why, but every time, I mean, that is just a tender place in my heart. It gets my heart. And then I think about my own ninos, right? When they come home from school, usually they're non-communicative. Try to ask them several questions, very little response. But if my, on the rare occasion, my son comes home from school and he's like, Dad, I need to talk to you about something. I mean, that statement does not happen regularly. And so when he says it, I am like full focused on what he needs to talk to me about. It means something happened. He has my ear. Tell me what's going on. This is what prayer does with God. For whatever reason, our prayers gets God's attention. And I used to think 
that when we entered into prayer with God, the whole purpose of prayer was to realign our lives around God's vision for us. And let me just say that that is true. Like that is actually 99% of the way that we interact with God in prayer because when we pray, it is us entering into his presence and when we are in that space, God is beginning to align our minds and our hearts with his heart. It is a process by which we begin to think of the world the way that God thinks of the world. And we see our relationships the way that God sees our relationships. And it is us becoming like him. That's what prayer does. But as I study scripture, I also realize that there are several accounts where when we come to God with prayer for whatever reason, God in his goodness allows for our finite thoughts and our limited lives to influence the way that he interacts in this world. An example of that would be in Genesis chapter 18 where Abraham is pleading with God. There's a whole group of people that are living out this deep sense of wickedness in their culture and God's judgment is about to be unleashed in them unleashed on them, and Abraham says, God, if there is at least one righteous person, would it not be worth saving this entire culture, this entire group of people? And God said, if you find one, we will, I will relent from my anger. And because Abraham asked God, God relented. And I do not know how this works. I do not understand that level. That's above my pay grade. But all I know is that for whatever reason, God allows for our prayers to influence him. And I want you to listen to this closely. God has given you access to the most tender parts of his heart because he loves you and you are so valuable to him. And part of why he allows for us to do this is because it is through prayer that God unleashes his power in our life. Look at what it says. He says, if my people would pray and humble themselves and turn from their sins, I would be willing in other words, this paraphrase, I would be willing to perform a miracle among them. He's saying, I am willing to do what no social program could do, what no healthcare organization could do, what no social organization could do, what no counseling community could do. I am willing to bring about spiritual healing for an entire generation of people. And what is so beautiful about this is that it is not hard. God does not make it hard to get access to his power. Remember, Jesus sort of reiterates this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, well, you will be empowered with my spirit to fulfill uh, the vision that I have for you. You will receive my power. And the truth is, and you probably realize this, is that if you've been on the journey of life for any amount of time, you know that if you are trying to live the life that God wants you to live, you need his power. Psalms chapter 127 verse 1 says that unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. We labor in vain. And what the psalmist is doing is he is acknowledging not just that all the things that we try to do without God is harder. He's acknowledging that all the things that we try to do without God's power is actually meaningless. He says, you were just doing it in vain. Can you imagine if you were like trying to run from one side of the room to the other, uh, and then you decided that the most effective way to do that would be to jump on a treadmill? 
right? You wouldn't get anywhere. You'd be pumping your arms and your legs, and there'd be a lot of energy being exerted from your body, but you were actually making no progress. That is how our lives look without God's power in it. A lot of energy, no progress. My family growing up uh, was notorious for driving bad cars. And, uh, and it's just pretty much because we bought cheap cars. And so they barely ran when we bought them. And it was no surprise to us that we broke, they broke down so often when we drove them. And there was one of the vehicles that like, was notorious because the gas gauge didn't work on the truck. And that might have not... That might have been like a manageable thing that you could sort of organize yourself around if you just paid attention to how many miles you were driving, and then you just know when you get to a certain place. But the problem in our family is we all shared cars. And so you were taking a guess when you were taking the car out as to whether or not it had enough gas to get you where you needed to go. And so there were several occasions where I broke down on the freeway, and I remember on one occasion, these random guys, really nice, they didn't look nice, but they were really nice, they picked me up in the car and I went with them to their house. When I was like 16 years old, I don't even know if my, I ever told my dad this happened. But I went to like some random person's house. They got a gas thing, took me to the gas station, and then it was like two guys. I was in the back of a car with two guys I didn't know on the east side of San Jose. Hey, that's wrong. Don't judge. Don't judge the east side. That's my barrio. But on this one occasion, I was driving this 1960, it was a 1960 Chevy Suburban my dad was fixing up. And, uh, and I was driving down one of the busy streets in Sunnyvale, and it ran out of gas. And so I saw that there was like this little turnout about 50 yards ahead, and so I got out of the car, made sure there was no one, you know, if people saw me. And when you're pushing a car by yourself, you don't get behind the car, you still got to steer it. This truck happened to not have any power steering and a really big wheel, so it was a struggle. But once you got the momentum going, it made it easier. So we're sort of putting away down this deal, and people could see that I was struggling. And so there were these guys who were in a car that saw me, they were sitting on the back of the car, they said, hey, do you need help? And I said, no, <laughs> like an idiot, because I was so embarrassed about the whole ordeal. But the problem was is that I was about to have to push this heavy truck on top of a curb to get out of the street. And so I start making my way, I know I've got a big curve, and I start trying to pick up speed, and I turn toward the curb, and I get right to the top, and the truck sort of draws back. I'm getting desperate, but I still got a little bit of energy, so I pull the truck back, I do the same thing, and I do that about three or four times till finally those guys just come over to me, and they said this really insightful statement. They said, all you had to do was ask for help. And I would have accessed the power of their muscles with my muscles, and there would have been no problem. But this is how some of us are living our lives. We are, in the, we are in the struggle. And it is week after week, and you never ask God for help. And the problem is, is that God wants to help. And you keep saying, no, I'm good. I got it. Let me try one more time. I think I can get it this time. And you go through this cycle, and every time you run yourself through that cycle, you are more tired at the end of it than you were when you first started. And prayer is the way that we access God's power and we say, we need your help. Recently, I heard one pastor say, he said, we do not pray because we are trying to be spiritual. We pray because we are desperate for change. 
And I think that maybe some of us don't pray because we don't realize how desperate we are for healing. Some of you have probably heard that statement where they say, hurt people hurt people. And what they're saying is that uh, if you have unaddressed brokenness in your life, oftentimes that stuff will bleed out into other relationships that you have. And oftentimes it's usually damaging to the people in your life. Hurt people hurt people. I tell my boys that. I said there's no such thing as a bad kid, but there is a kid who is hurting. And sometimes that gets poured out into other people's lives. But I think it's also true that healed people heal people. Healed people are capable of responding with wisdom to brokenness when it comes into their life because they're no longer living that fragmented life. They've been there and they have done that. And I thought about two stories uh, to share this morning. Uh, one was of me being a healed person and the other was of me being a broken person. Okay, and I just want you to know that there's examples of both in my life, but I'm going to tell you the broken part. I was having a conversation with another pastor friend of mine. And there was an organization that we were partnered with. We both have relationships with these people. And I had a bad experience with these people. And so I said something negative about this organization to my friend. And my friend did not allow it. He did not allow for me to speak negatively of someone else. And what was happening is I was allowing for my trauma, not a trauma, that's overstatement. I was allowing for my frustration with the relationships I had with these people and I loved how my friend kind of just put me in a spiritual check. And I remember walking away from that experience feeling a little bit embarrassed, but also thankful that I had someone in my life who was healthy enough to not allow for me to live in some brokenness. And I'm not going to tell the other story, but I could because the Lord held me back. Sometimes as a pastor, you, you want to go back to the old life. You want to go back to the old life, but you can't. And, uh, but it's true, healed people healed people. And the power that God wants to unleash in our life is so that we will experience healing. Because remember what the passage says, if you pray, I will heal. And there are so many people who are walking all around this world and we are walking with spiritual limps in our life. And part of it is because we have not gotten to this place where we are desperate enough for what God can do in our lives. I remember wife and I, we got, first got married. Ten days after we got married, we moved to Texas. And, um, and we didn't know anybody. I think we knew one couple in Fort Worth, Texas. And we were, we were kind of in a desperate situation. I didn't have a job. She didn't have a job. I eventually got a job as a carpenter on campus. She was starting a business. But in the meantime, I'm telling you, we took every odd job we could. I worked in concrete. We were babysitting. We were house cleaning. And we were doing it all just to make ends meet. And I remember in that season of life, our prayer life was through the roof. I mean, every phone call we prayed before, every time someone told us how much they were going to pay us, we were praying for. Every little detail in our life, we would literally get on our knees in our tiny little apartment and we would just say, God, be in this. Whatever it is, we need you to be in this. We were desperate. We were desperate. And the question is, when will, be, when will we become desperate enough to begin praying for the things that matter most in our life? When will we become desperate enough to start praying for the marriage that is on the brink of life? When will we become desperate enough to start praying for our children who season after season seem to struggle to make sense of their own lives? When will we begin praying for our parents 
who can't seem to break the cycles that were transferred to them from the previous generation, when will we start praying for the addiction that it seems to chain us up in every season of life, or our boss who we can't stand but we love, or our friend who seems to be on the attack, or the spiritual dryness that has described the nature of our relationship with God for a season of life, or maybe our own mental health? When will we start praying for our city and our church and each other? When will we become desperate enough and honest enough to admit that we are not strong enough on our own? God, we need you. Prayer has always been the beginning of revival in our world. God says, if you pray, I will heal your prayer. I will hear your prayers. I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. God is saying that I am willing to bring about spiritual revival in the land. Revival is a word that means to, like, bring back to life. You revive someone who is dead whose body is no longer working, it is decaying, and you are bringing them back to life. When God talks, when we talk about revival, we are talking about a church that was once alive, but for whatever reason, over the course of time, it grew weaker and weaker, and the church is now on the brink of having absolutely no impact in the world, and God is saying, I am willing to bring it back to life. And all throughout history, the beginning of revival has been the willingness of a few people who are willing to say, God, I know we cannot do it on our own. There is no amount of marketing that will revive the church. There is no amount of money that will revive the church. God, we are trusting that it is only through prayer that we can access your power to bring about spiritual healing in our land. A few people who look at the landscape of their culture and they're saying something's going on. And I think that we are at that point in our world today. I think that we are at that point in the Bay Area. Did you know that 92% of people in the Bay Area have no connection to a local church? They're wandering, searching for something, disconnected from a life of promise. But this is always how it began. Here's the pattern of revival in the book of Acts. The church prays. The spirit moves and the church changes the world. Acts 4.24 says, when they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer. Okay, this was not some golf tournament golf clap. Okay, sometimes when we pray, we are whispering. But part of why the early church was so effective in their prayers is because their prayers matched the intensity of the situation that they were facing. It didn't say that they were whispering. It says that they raised their voices in prayer to God. Galatians chapter 4.19 says, Oh, my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again, and they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your life. Look at the words that Paul is describing. He's talking about labor which he should not do because he's a man, and if he was in the 21st century, he would be canceled for that. Okay? But he compared ministry to the pain of childbirth, and just to give credibility to the dads in the room, we know it hurts, and it's, it looks real painful, so it's a, it's a legitimate comparison.
They didn't pray to be spiritual. They prayed because they were desperate for change. And if we desire a restoration in your land, our land, if we are looking out at the world and we're asking the question, what is going on? It ain't going to be your politics that makes the change that you want to see. It is going to be a small group of people who are desperate enough to pray for change to God to do something powerful in our land. There's a really powerful story about the growth of the Korean church. And over the course of about 100 years, Korea went from 1% Christian to 50% Christian. And there was this recording of a firsthand account of someone who witnessed one of the initial prayer meetings where they saw the beginning of revival beginning to shape, take shape in Korea. And this is what it says. It says, the missionaries and Korean Christians had been praying for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit for revival and repentance, and it came on the Saturday night of January 1907. Many at the prayer meeting began praying out loud, and as soon signs of awakening began to appear, as one missionary described it. The sound of many praying at once brought a vast harmony of sound and spirit, a mingling together of souls moved by an irresistible impulse of prayer. The prayer sounded to me like the falling of many waters, an ocean of prayer beating against God's throne. It was not many, but one born of one spirit lifted to one father. They did not pray because they were spiritual. They prayed because they were desperate for change. There is a, a place in northern Chile. I'm going to pronounce this, but it's called the, the Atacama Desert. And it is literally one of the driest places on earth. And if you were to go there, I mean, it would look like this barren wasteland. Nothing could live there. It was dry. Very few things seemed to, to it seemed like they would, it could survive in that area. And most years, most years, if you were to go to the Atacama Desert, it would look like this barren wasteland. But there are a few seasons, for whatever reason, the atmospheric weather will bring about this extremely heavy downpouring of rain. And, uh, and there are times where it rains a little bit, but it's such an arid place that even if the water touches the topsoil surface, it doesn't do anything to the life uh, in that area. And so many people believe that, that you couldn't grow anything on that land. But a few years ago, there was this huge outpouring of water. And, uh, and what they realized is actually there were thousands and thousands of seeds embedded into that dirt but had never been activated because the water couldn't reach it unless there's this huge outpouring of water. But when there was, there was what they call a super bloom, where thousands of flowers sprouted across this barren desert that people thought could never produce life. That is what prayer does in our land. Prayer will activate the hidden spiritual needs of the people in our world. And when you have a committed group of people willing to pray for God's revival, that is what you'll see. A church that is brought back to life. And you may not know this, but we got a ragtag group of prayer warriors in this church. And uh, it ain't pretty, but every Wednesday morning at 7.30, we got a small group of people that come together. And this is what's special about this group. Never been a part of a group like this. But they're pretty strict. They say, hey, we're not taking any prayer requests. All right, we don't care if you, you know, your back is aching or you got a headache. We do not care about you. Okay, that is not what this prayer group is for. 
The only thing this group prayers, prays for are the people in this church, the needs of this church, and revival in our city. That's all we pray for. And right now, I think it feels like a little drop of water on a vast desert that needs revival. But what we are praying and believing is that we're just going to do our part. We're just going to keep showing up and we're going to keep asking God because what we have seen all throughout Scripture is that when we pray with persistency, God responds to those prayers. And we're going to pray that it's not just our church because it's not. There are many other churches in the Bay Area that are praying for the same thing. And we're going to lock arms and join forces and believe that there is still hope for an area like Silicon Valley. Can you imagine what God would be willing to do with a group of people who were desperate enough to pray? And so the question is, what do we do? Well, you're in luck. Because beginning tomorrow, as a church, we are entering into a seven-day period of prayer and fasting. And we got a little app, because I know you guys are like, well, what do I read? What do I do? We got a little thing called the Bible app. And I want to encourage you, like, as soon as service ends, or even right now, you can get your phone out, go to the app store. It's a Bible app. And we're going to send you a link through a website. We'll have it on our social media page. But if you download that app, we as a church are going to do seven days of prayer and fasting. So the praying part is we're going to just pray. And there's going to be directions on how to pray. We're going to do it individually. We're going to pray for the city. And that will be pretty clear. But the fasting part is going to be up to you. And this is where you're just going to discern, God, how do you, what do you want me to give up for this season so that I can hear more from you? And that is what fasting has been for us. We say we're going to decrease our consumption somewhere in life so that we can increase in our commitment to God. And we're going to take the next seven days to realign our heart, to reset our souls, so that we have clarity of vision about where God is leading us in this next season of life. And I'm just telling you, this is such a powerful experience. I want to encourage every single one of you just to add it to your normal routine or to begin the routine with us, because what we'll do every day is you'll read through the devotions, you'll read through the scripture, and then, we, and then there's a question at the end of every devotion. And it has been almost as powerful for me to hear how other people are processing those scriptures in their life. And I know for a fact that uh, at the beginning of the year, we did 21 days of prayer and fasting. Which we're like, we're not doing that twice a year. Okay, we're not there yet as a church. We'll get there someday. So we do for seven days. But there was life transformation that took place in people's lives. There were things that they abandoned during those 21 days that they never went back to. And so what I'm saying is let's take the next seven days as a community to pray together, to fast together, and we'll see what God does on the back end. Does that sound good? Okay. The whole Bible is about how God created a good world that was destroyed by sin, and through Jesus Christ, he is restoring it again. And there are some of us today that have never stepped into the goodness that God wants for your life. There are some of you, for whatever reason, who have continued to resist that life for yourself. And maybe you're thinking, I just don't have enough of my questions answered. And you're thinking, I just have not experienced what I hear everyone else talking about. But this is sort of the, the hack to faith is that most of the time we experience God's goodness on the back end of a faith decision. So if you are waiting to understand God before you make the decision, you may be waiting for a lifetime. 
If you are waiting to trust God before you experience his love, you may be waiting for a lifetime. But maybe today is the day where you realize I can't do it on my own. I don't have the power. And if that's you this morning, I want to give you a chance to take one simple, small step of faith into God's love, to cross that finish line of faith, and to allow for God to do in your heart what only he can do. If that's you this morning, I want you to repeat this simple prayer after me in your heart. And we tell everyone every week that it's nothing special about the prayer. It's whether or not these words reflect the desire of your heart, the reality of your experience. And so I'm going to ask everyone to bow their heads and to close their eyes this morning. And today, if you're ready to begin a relationship with God, you can pray this prayer after me. Dear God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for never abandoning me when I abandoned you. God, I've been running my own race for a long time. And I'm so tired. But today was a remember, reminder that I can't do it on my own. And I believe that. And today I'm ready to believe that you love me enough to send your son to die on the cross for my sins so that I did not have to carry the weight on my own. Today I receive the gift of salvation. In Jesus' name, I believe. I want you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed this morning. And for those of you that prayed that prayer in your heart, I'm going to ask you to take one more bold step of faith. And I know it's not easy, but the truth is, following Jesus in a world like ours sometimes isn't easy and it's never meant to be because what God wants more for you is your holiness more than he wants your happiness because he knows that if you experience the goodness of his life it will lead to something beyond happiness and I'm going to ask if you prayed that prayer in your heart this morning just to raise your hand on the count of three because we want this to be a moment that is solidified in your heart and in your life that today you came and you heard a message that spoke to you, and you're ready to, to build your life on the foundation of God's love. If that's you this morning, on the count of three, I'm going to ask you just to simply raise your hand. One, God loves you more than you could possibly know. Two, you did not end up in this place by accident. Three, go ahead and raise your hand this morning. I see you, 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 I see you. Any others? Any others, if you're tuning in online, go ahead and hit the button at the bottom of the screen. We have a host that would love to get you more resources to help you continue to walk in that journey of life. What people did this morning wasn't an act of weakness, it was an act of strength. It was an act of honesty and wisdom. Saying, God, I need you. I need you right now. God, I thank you for every life in this church, and God, we're so grateful that in every season you continue to do what you always do. And you come into this place and you provide healing in our hearts. And we thank you for that, Father. And our prayer for this next season is that every person who has experienced healing would become a peacemaker in someone else's life. That we'd become unshakable with our peace, knowing that you have a purpose for the healing that you provided for us into others' lives. And so we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.
would you guys do me a favor this morning? And can we celebrate every life that stepped into faith for the first time? Thank you.